Sydney Environment Institute, in partnership with Sydney Ideas Presents, Eating in the City, part three of the 2017 Food at Sydney Seminar Series, with speakers David Schlossberg, Alison Heller and Rhiannon Cook. Good evening. My name is Dr Alada Mann. I'm a key researcher in the Sydney Environment Institute, which I'm delighted brings you this fabulous series. We're in our third seminar panel today, and uh, I will introduce our speakers to you shortly. But before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we discuss this important topic tonight, sharing our knowledge, we remember that the original custodians of the land shared their knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices on the same space. So we pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. So welcome, thank you for coming out on a cold, crisp night. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the Food at Sydney series before we begin. It's an initiative which is part of the Sydney Environment Institute. One of our speakers tonight is actually co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute, Professor David Schlossberg. You'll hear more about him soon. We run this in conjunction with uh, Sydney Ideas and I'd like to thank Meredith Hall for her ongoing excellent support of our activities at the Environment Institute. Our 2017 series focuses on what it means to be eating our environment which actually has a number of very um, appropriate meanings. To do this, we are bringing together planners, advocates, scholars, producers, and our usually excellently informed audience to discuss how food is woven through the fabric of everyday life in our increasingly urban century, connecting many social and environmental injustices in the world around us, both in Australia and globally. The series has been running since 2014. And if you'd like to visit our website, the Sydney Environment Institute website at the University of Sydney, you can find out more about what we've done and what we plan to do. And I invite you, um, you would have seen um, a Twitter hashtag on the screen before, which will flash up again for you later. Uh, we encourage you to engage in social media um, while your phones are silent, of course. A number of researchers at the Institute have been invo uh, involved in a policy lab uh, project, a new initiative by the University of Sydney. Um, ten projects were awarded for this lab. One of them was food, and we're delighted to be um, organising that within the Sydney Environment Institute. And our intention with the Food Policy Lab is to develop solutions to some of the food systems issues that we're discussing today. And we're doing that in collaboration with very important partners who, again, I'm really delighted to welcome to our panel tonight. So we're working with councils in Greater Sydney and we're also exploring collaborations with the City of Sydney itself because we're particularly interested in focusing on uh, uh, possibly, ironically, a neglected area which is the local government area, so the very centre of Sydney which is really important, of course, because it's a site of incredible development and densification. So we're a bit concerned about where all these people not only are going to live, but what they're going to eat. 
This work is a very important part of the city's broader social sustainability strategy, which we're also delighted to work with the city um, on doing some research. Uh, it's identified food insecurity as a key issue facing many local residents, and possibly one that's often overlooked in an apparently affluent country where food appears plentiful. And that brings us to today's sem seminar. Too many Australians go hungry in the city. Just to give you an idea, a surprising statistic I came across doing some research earlier this year was that up to half a million Australians visit a food bank every month. And um, within the city itself, researchers have found that a staggering 8% of residents are actually food insecure. So that means that you've gone without food and been unable to support, to support your family or provide food for yourself within um, a particular period of time on more than one occasion. So there's various measures of um, food insecurity which our speakers will talk about as well. So we're going to talk about what can be done tonight, um, what is being done as well and what food-related um, urban planning policy actions can really help um, improve the um, rate of food security within the City of Sydney and also promote what we call food justice. So a sense of equal opportunity when it comes to our food choices. So I'm delighted to introduce all three speakers. I'm going to name them and then um, and, and then give you a more detailed bio before each person speaks so that you don't lose track of who's talking. And what we do do in the um, panel's format is encourage our speakers to give us 10 to 12 minutes on their area of expertise and following all three speeches, we'll have opportunity for a Q&A, which I think is always one of the most exciting parts of the evening. So please make sure if you've got a question for the first speaker, keep track of it so that you can ask it at the end. So I'd, it's my pleasure to introduce Rhiannon Cook, representing the New South Wales Council of Social Services, Alison Heller, the Manager of Social Strategy at the City of Sydney, and Professor David Schlossberg, Professor of Environmental Politics and Co-Director of the Sydney Environment Institute. So Rhiannon is our first speaker. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before she comes to the podium. Rhiannon leads the New South Wales Council of Social Services policy and advocacy agenda across portfolios including health, mental health and the environment. In 2016, NCOS published the report Overweight and Obesity, Balancing the Scales for Vulnerable Children. Rhiannon previously consulted to the World Health Organization working across the Western Pacific region and has held numerous senior policy roles in human service agencies at both state and Commonwealth levels. So please join me in welcoming Rhiannon. Thanks for that lovely introduction. I'd also like to start by acknowledging that we're sitting and standing on um, Aboriginal land. This is land that has never been ceded and is, was and always will be Aboriginal land and pay my respects to traditional elders past and present. Um, so a little bit about NCOS, the organisation that I work for. 
We're a peak body for the community um, sector in New South Wales. So our members include really big NGOs that most people have heard of, like St Vinnie's and Anglican and Red Cross, right down to tiny little grassroots organisations that have one or two employees. Um, we've got about 600 organisational members across New South Wales. And our remit is to work towards a, a New South Wales that is free from poverty and disadvantage. So we represent the people who experience poverty and disadvantage and we do that by working with the community organisations that serve them. So in my presentation, I'm going to focus on three things. Um, firstly, food and affordability. And then where food sits within a household's budget, how they view food within their weekly budget. And then I'm going to move on to um, food and health, so the relationship between food insecurity and health, um, and the cost of unhealthy versus healthy food, and moving on to overweight and obesity. So one of the things that we do every year to inform our policy work at NCOS is a survey of people who are on low incomes. And last year, our survey focused on health, and this year, our most recent survey focused on energy. It's not a survey that's designed to assess levels of food security, but there are a number of questions in the survey that give us a sense of um, the, the group of people for whom food affordability is a real issue. Um, so this is taken from our most recent survey. One of the questions in the survey, we present people with a list of common household items. These are items that have been tested across the community and people agree that most households should have access to these items. It's taken from work from um, UNSW's Social Policy Research Centre. And we ask people, which of these items can you afford or can't you afford or don't you want? And you can see that, that food isn't, isn't um, the highest up on the list, but still a good proportion of people are saying, no, I can't afford a substantial meal once a day. So that's a pretty extreme level of food insecurity. If you can't afford a meal once a day... Um, so that was 5% of respondents who said that. We also, because we're um, an advocacy organisation and our job is to advocate for the changes we want to see in our community, we want our advocacy agenda to be guided by the people who we represent. So we asked them, well, what would make a big difference in your life? And this is the result of that. So you can see people say, if I had access to affordable and healthy food, that would make a pretty big difference in my life. It came in fifth, followed by affordable health services, a secure place to live, assistance paying bills, dental care, and affordable healthy food was the next thing. So a follow-up question to that one was, why would this make a difference? And I'm just going to give you a brief sample of some of the themes that came through in that response as they related to, to food. So we all need healthy food, but because we don't have money, we have to go to places to give out free food. Or if we didn't have to spend all our money on food, we could afford other essentials in life. Most of our income goes into buying food 
and some of the food we buy isn't fresh because we can't afford the fresh stuff. And, and this one sort of reveals how the lack of money influences people's behaviour. We can't afford a big shop, we have to go to the shops every day. So moving on to how households view, um, view food within their daily budget. The average household spends 16.8% of their weekly expenditure on food. But for low-income households, that proportion of um, expenditure is higher, it's 18.6%. For high-income households, it's slightly lower. But you can see when that translates into dollar amounts, high-income households are spending, in an absolute sense, spending a lot more on food than lower-income households. For people whose main source of income is a government allowance, the proportion that they spend on food is, is a bit higher. They spend just over 20% of their weekly expenditure on food. And the spending patterns between low-income and high-income households are quite different. Low-income households, not surprisingly, spend a much larger proportion of their food budget on staples like bread and meat and fruit and vegetables, whereas high-income households spend a lot more on meals out and fast foods. When people think about food in their budget, it's, it's surprising, but it's one of the, the more discretionary items because people tend, people in very low incomes who are struggling um, to make ends meet, prioritise rent and bills over food because the impact of skipping a meal is much less immediate. Um, so you can skip a meal, but if you skip your rent, the consequences can be pretty dramatic. So going back to our survey, which focused on energy, one of the questions we asked was, what are the things in your life that you give up in order to pay your bills? And so I've highlighted the, the responses from the people who said, yep, in the last 12 months, I sometimes, often or always, have given up a meal for myself in order to pay my energy bills. And then perhaps even more worryingly, there was a significant proportion of respondents who said, yes, yeah, some, sometimes my sometimes, often or always, my children have gone without food so that we can pay our energy bills. So you can imagine if you're living in a household and you're struggling each day to put a meal on the table, some of the impacts that you might have on your, that might have on your life. There are mental health impacts, anxiety, depression, um, and it will impact your social health because so much of our ability to connect to other people centres around food. So um, for more, uh, a deeper expl exploration of some of those themes, I heartily recommend Anglicare's work on food insecurity. They've done some in-depth research with um, people who've accessed their emergency relief services and it's really revealing to hear people talk about the fact that they can't invite their neighbours in for tea because they can't afford to offer them a biscuit. Um, so there's this real sense of embarrassment and shame around not being able to be hospitable because you can't afford food. Um, and then where I'm going to focus the rest of my presentation is on the physical health impacts of food insecurity. 
Um, so it's estimated that a poor diet contributes to at least 10% of the burden of disease. And when people talk about food and health, they often think about food as an individual choice, a choice people can make. They can choose to eat healthily or they can choose to eat unhealthily. And I guess from where we sit, we're interested in how you can make those healthy choices um, the easiest choices or even possible choices because we think for some people it's not actually possible to choose to eat healthily. And that brings me to three questions which I'll talk about. The first is, is healthy food more expensive than unhealthy food? It sounds like a really simple question, but it's actually quite a tricky one to answer. I mean, if you go into a shop, you can typically buy a banana for less money than you can buy a Mars bar. And there's often an assumption in policy-making circles that, yes, healthy food is cheaper. I've heard many intelligent, informed people in influential roles state this as fact. Healthy food is more affordable than unhealthy food. And if you look at the transcripts from last year's parliamentary inquiry into child overweight and obesity, you'll hear this statement repeated throughout. Um, and I'm going to come back to that question a little bit later. Another question that people ask is, well, is healthy food becoming more expensive? So I've got a couple of graphs to look at that question. This... Oh, sorry. Let's skip back a little bit. Um, in our survey, it was really clear that people's experience on the ground did not agree with this conceived wisdom that healthy food is more expensive, is cheaper than unhealthy food. So this is some of the comments again. We want to eat healthily. We shouldn't be punished for wanting to eat healthily. Um, this is a short... This is taken from a longer comment, but basically, if I had more money, I would be able to feed the people in my house healthy food rather than junk food. Um, fresh healthy food is more expensive and healthy food's too expensive so the way I choose to feed myself is a cheap fast food option once a day. So people who are experiencing poverty and disadvantage certainly do not agree that healthy food is the cheaper option. So is healthy food becoming more expensive? This is a graph that just shows food versus CPI over the last 10 years, and it shows that the cost of food has pretty much kept pace with CPI. But you can look at food in more detail, and there is some research that has done that that says, well, some, some items, such as cakes and biscuits and soft drinks, are going up at, at a slower pace than healthier alternatives. This is a graph that's a, a very simple breakdown of all of the items that go into that um, single line. And it looks really complicated and messy. But the takeaway thing to look at is the green line that's bouncing all over the place. That's the cost of fruit and vegetables. So it's really unstable, whereas most of the other food items, they're pretty stable. 
So that means there's a certain lack of predictability when people are trying to work out what they're spending their money on. Fruit and vegetables, um, that, that big spike in the middle, I think that that was, um, they're related to extreme weather events, the big spikes, and so we're likely to see more of those into the future. So I think perhaps a more important question to ask is, well, is healthy food affordable for everyone? And I think Alison's going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in her presentation, but there is quite a lot of research that says no, healthy food is not affordable for everyone. Um, so Anglicare, who've done excellent work on this, um, the people that access their, their services, they found that 43% of households say what they do in order to make ends meet is ch um, choose cheap carbohydrates over fresh fruit and vegetables. So because affordability is an issue, people are choosing the options, the food options that are going to fill them up rather than the food options that are best for their health. And when we try and answer this question about whether or not food is affordable, it's really important to think about food in the context of people's lives. So some of the things that we have to think about are transport. We know that low-income households are less likely to have their own vehicle um, and they can't shop around for the best deal. So often they're forced to choose um, to buy their food from more expensive locations such as the, the local convenience shop. Um, and that's, you know, that has an impact. Also time. Healthy food can be more time consuming to buy and prepare. And many low income families live, have a longer commute, they live further from work um, because that's where cheaper housing is available um, and they therefore have less time to prepare healthy meals. Refrigeration is a big issue for a small group of people. If you don't have a fridge, <coughs> you can't buy food in advance or your food goes rotten. And cash flow. Many people are living day to day. And so again, if you can't buy in bulk, there's a, a cash penalty that, um, that results from that. Thanks. So I'm going to turn now to what can we do about this? Some of the things that we think would be the best responses have nothing to do with food. And they include um, policy responses such as lifting the base rate of allowances, investing in social and affordable housing, and something that our next cost of living report will focus on when it comes out is improving the, our system of energy concessions so that the benefits flow to those who need the most support. But when we do turn back to this relationship between food insecurity and health, we think it's really important that all efforts to improve people's diets should take affordability barriers into account. So in our recent work, um, we've focused on overweight and obesity. And that's partly because it's an important issue, but also it's politically expedient because the New South Wales Premier has committed to reducing overweight and obesity rates in children by 5% over 10 years. That is, by all accounts, a very ambitious target. And the presence of that 
um, target has meant that there's a lot of momentum and focus and energy within policy-making circles on this issue. So we're pushing on an open door. But theoretically, it would be possible to achieve that target while at the same time widen, widening the gap between high and low income families. So you could have all the benefits flowing to children from middle, middle and high income families and leaving um, children from low income families further behind. And the most recent New South Wales Schools Physical Activity and Nutrition Survey found that that's sort of what's happening. Overweight and obesity rates have pretty much stabilised, but children from low-income backgrounds are 1.7 times more likely to be overweight and obese than their wealthier counterparts. So that's a pretty steep social gradient, and at least part of that social gradient relates to food insecurity. So we've published, we published a discussion paper last year and then a report on this issue that really made, um, that made a number of key recommendations. Um, the framework we used to analyse this issue um, was an ecological framework that puts a child in the context of their family and their neighbourhood. And if you look at a whole lot of factors that influence what people eat and, and how they, the, their activity patterns, you see that children from low-income families are disadvantaged on very many factors. So the three population-level responses we think are important um, and where the benefits would flow to low-income families are a sugar tax, um, restricting the marketing of junk food, and better integration between planning and health. So earlier this year, uh, the Planning Act was reviewed and we supported efforts within the community to make sure health and wellbeing is an objective in that act. It seems crazy that it's not already there, but it's not. So um, hopefully those efforts see some result. Um, but as well as those sort of population level responses, we've argued that there needs to be a focus on investing geographically in low socioeconomic areas um, and they're also targeted strategies are needed for particularly vulnerable groups. So these groups include children who've come into contact with the out-of-home care system or children who've been in the juvenile justice system and, of course, Aboriginal children and young people. What's next for us is because the community sector has strong existing relationships with vulnerable children, um, vulnerable young people and their families, we think that they've got a really important role to play in making sure the response to child overweight and obesity is an equitable one. So we're holding a forum to talk about this in more detail on the 28th of June and I left some flyers on the front desk and this is a bit of a shameless plug. Um, but I'm also really looking forward to hearing from our next presenters um, who I think might spark some thoughts about some of the some of the strategies we could use to make sure um, particular groups aren't left behind. So, thank you. Thanks, Rhiannon. That was an excellent, really clear presentation of some of the issues and some, you're doing some outstanding research that really gets to the heart of these problems. So, our next speaker, is Alison Heller. Alison is Manager of Social St Strategy at the City of Sydney, responsible for strategic leadership on issues related to 
the social aspects of the city's Sustainable Sydney 2030 strategy. She has spent her career to date in urban and social policy and research circles, previously consulting in the property sector on issues including social impact assessment, social infrastructure planning and affordable housing delivery models. She previously worked as a journalist in London for a decade in the urban renewal sector, is qualified in urban planning and is currently undertaking a Masters of Political Economy here at University of Sydney. I didn't know that. <laughs> so please join me in welcoming Alison. Thank you, Alana. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity to be here this evening and, and welcome and I'd also like to pay my respects to the Gadigal of the Eora Nation on whose land we're meeting and to elders past and present. So we've been working with David and, and the team for a while now looking at food insecurity issues and what's happening in the City of Sydney LGA. We have developed a social sustainability policy recently uh, and that, that was a critical issue that was looked at through this work. We are trying to expose the issue that food security insecurity exists within our community here in the city, uh, because as, as Dr. Mann mentioned, there is a really widespread kind of consideration that it's a wealthy city, people here in this LGA are generally doing fine. It's actually not the case, uh, our research shows. So we know most of us are probably experiencing this every day. The city is going through a huge amount of population growth and change, urban renewal transforming the city, corridors like Central to Everly and the forthcoming renewal of the Waterloo Public Housing Estate. They're, they're massive projects and they're changing the nature of who's living and working in the city. We know also global trends are driving higher income earners to want to live in the city. These trends are driving relative inequality in the city, just like other global cities, and we're publishing now. We're looking at doing more research to expose what's happening and the impacts of that. So what does food security mean in the context of a global city like Sydney? Well, it's a hidden issue to a certain extent, uh, but it exists right in our midst. Uh, as Dr Mann mentioned, 8% of residents in the city of Sydney are experiencing food insecurity, which means they can't afford to buy enough food, uh, they've gone without meals. So essentially in our urban context here, it's about affordability. Um, there is food on the shelves of supermarkets, but people can't necessarily afford it. And we're hearing anecdotal stories of people going outside the LGA to do their grocery shopping because they can't afford to do it in their own communities. So it's also about nutrition, as Rihanna's mentioned and, and talked about, you know, the quality of food people are eating. And it's a growing and very live issue. So again, just the figures, you know, we publish through our social sustainability work. This data comes from a wellbeing survey we do of every resident every four years. So this survey gets mailed out. I don't know if any of you live in the city, but you would have received this survey. Um, the last one was in 2014. So we ask a range of questions on issues like levels of trust in the community. Do people know their neighbours? Would they be able to ask their neighbours for help in an emergency? And issues like have they gone without meals because they can't afford it? So that's a pretty um, stark statistic and, and we, were, we were surprised when we read that. 
um, when we did that number crunching and financial stress. So again, these issues are completely interlinked, levels of entrenched poverty in the LGA which exist, uh, housing unaffordability, they're all very much linked issues. So we know that it's the lowest income earners in the city who are being affected by this issue. We know that of the lower income earners in the city, 65% are in housing stress. So they're paying more than 30% of their income on housing costs. A number of those would be paying more than half their income on housing costs. When we break down the issues of how much they're then needing to spend on food, there's not much left over. So we can see where those difficult choices are made and people are skipping meals. So I'm not sure if any of you saw the Salvation Army report that came out last week, A Hard Road, really reinforces the work NCOS is doing and other charities to expose this issue. So this report from the Salvation Army is based on a national economic and social impact survey. They look at different aspects of that in terms of people who are receiving support from them. Food security was the number one issue experienced by people who are taking support from the Salvation Army. 69% of people who are receiving um, their support had run out of food and couldn't afford to buy more. So essentially what the report exposes is that the lowest income earners, many or most of whom are on social security uh, payments, those payments are not enough to feed themselves. The payments aren't keeping pace with inflation, so people are being, uh, suffering food insecurity. So we know this is a policy issue in a wealthy country when there is abundant food. Uh, we have done some research then to truly try and understand this issue um, in the city of Sydney. We worked in 2015 with ISF at UTS and we looked at, okay, what would a balanced basket of food cost to purchase for different household types? So this was really trying to understand exactly what's going on in the city of Sydney LGA. Uh, and we can see that for the lowest income earners, this is probably an easier way to look at the numbers, the lowest income earners, say a young couple, is spending 30% of their income on food, Add that to probably more than 50% of their income on rent if they're in the private rental market. And again, it's just a really stark issue. And we can see just how much it costs to buy a normal grocery shop that has a balanced uh, amount of different food in it that would provide for a nutritious diet. So again, this is about... We, the social sustainability work is looking at this in the context of inclusive economic growth, economic growth that makes sure people aren't left behind along the way and that the benefits of that growth uh, and the booming economy in the city is actually shared by all and we don't have these sorts of issues. There is obviously rising awareness and concern about inequality in other global cities and in Sydney itself. Again, it can be a bit invisible in the city because of the, the spatial segregation or, or spatial disadvantage. So people often unaware that this issue exists in our midst. We are looking at this in terms of our policy work, which is also informed by work uh, by the uh, Resilience Sydney team. Now, we've had a uh, Chief Resilience Officer funded through the Rockefeller Foundation, 
and they're looking at these issues across greater metropolitan Sydney. So this is the team uh, now looking at this. Uh, Beck Dawson is the resilience officer now for metropolitan Sydney, and she's working with the Greater Sydney Commission and looking at, okay, how do we address these issues in the Sydney Basin? So it's also linked with the sustainable development goals, access to meeting basic needs, food, shelter. So it's such a baseline um, fundamental need that is such a critical one to address. So just to quickly touch on some of the ways the city has been looking at this issue through our social sustainability work and the environmental team's work. We are developing a city farm. So there's just a range of initiatives where we're starting to raise awareness of food insecurity, really trying to expose the issue, try some different ideas, look at how to educate, raise awareness. So we're coming at it from a few different angles. The City Farm, uh, which is in development at City Park, we're running that with a team of volunteers who are actually getting involved in the planting. There's food propagation initiatives. It's about urban agriculture and looking at those sorts of issues. Growing, the plan is to grow crops like wheat and different food supplies that you wouldn't normally see in, in an urban area, but mainly to showcase and educate, not to try and necessarily feed the population of Sydney, but we're looking at models like the High Line in New York, where all of the planting was really driven by volunteers. So it's getting people involved. We've got 100 volunteers already now involved in this project, and, and it's about that building community awareness around these issues. We're also looking at a number of initiatives that are about food education, and we've been working with a number of food charities through sponsorships to look at education and nutrition classes in our community centres. So a number of these local centres had commercial kitchens in them because historically people would come there for meals. So we're looking at repurposing those kitchens, using them for new purposes, new education initiatives. This was a program uh, of teaching mainly and, and, and working with mainly Chinese-born residents, looking at different food styles and learning... Um, learning to cook new Western kinds of food, and that was really successful. We've also worked with Oz Harvest uh, to look at food nutrition and education um, classes in our community centres. Uh, Second Bite, we're funding them for a few nutrition class. So again, it's a lot of that work around education, but we know then getting to the crux of it, there's a fundamental issue and that's about affordability. And we've been working with David and the team and exploring different options for how do we address this issue in the city. That's really exciting. We're looking at that in the context of the broader social and economic issues around food security. So how do we think about that in the context of social inclusion, economic inclusion, building community ties, looking at economic development initiatives. We think we've got some good opportunities coming with the scale of urban renewal in the city. And I'll leave that to David to talk a bit more about that. But again, we know we need to come at this from many different angles and we're looking forward to your views as well on how we can evolve those approaches as we get better understanding of the issue. Thanks. Thanks, Alison. It's so great to hear these conversations are happening before everything is built, <laughs> before everything is changed. 
So um, thank you so much for that. And our final speaker tonight is Professor David Schlossberg, Professor of Environmental Politics at the De Department of Government and International Relations here at the University of Sydney and also co-director of SEI. He is known internationally for his work in environmental politics, environmental movements and political theory, and particularly the intersection of the three with his work on environmental justice. Professor Schlossberg currently works on climate justice, in particular justice in climate adaptation strategies and policies, and the question of human obligations of justice to the non-human realm as well. He is also examining the sustainable practices of new environmental movement groups, in particular their attentions to flows of power and goods in relation to food, energy and sustainable fashion. And he also continues theoretical work at the interface of justice, democracy and human-non-human -human relations in the Anthropocene. So please join me in welcoming Professor Schlossberg. I sound like such an academic after the last couple of talks. So um, I'm actually going to start uh, um, with a fairly broad analysis uh, of the central problems uh, of current food systems more generally, and then um, narrow down how we might address those in the city. So, um, and I'm going to whip through some of the earlier stuff so we can actually get to the solution-oriented stuff and then have some time for questions. But um, for me, broadly put, um, human beings in providing for the basic needs that we need uh, for everyday life, food, clothing, energy, all those sorts of things, um, we are often uh, completely disconnected from the natural systems that provide for them. We often have no clue about how food systems or energy systems work um, or how they decimate ecological systems uh, on which they depend. And at the same time, we live in this absurd, unjust, and unjustifiable system of inequality. Right? Vast wealth, gluttony, conspicuous consumption, and waste are built on the backs of those who go without. So we, and we have this ideal, this enlightenment ideal, that we're always progressing, we're always moving forward, we're bending towards justice. Um, but that's clearly not the case. Um, and Rihanna just uh, laid out some of the specifics uh, of how inequality is actually getting worse. So, of course, these things are related, and this whole, um, uh, this whole slide here is about the great acceleration that Anthropocene theorists like Will Steffen have laid out. These are all of the disconnects from and all of the abuses <clears throat> of ecological systems that we see growing from about the middle of the 20th century. Um, and this is actually matched uh, by what other folks have called the great divergence, um, which has to do uh, with income as well, growing income uh, and wealth inequality. So food systems in general, the Sydney food system as an example, represents what is both ecologically and socially problematic with the way that we provide basic needs for ourselves, or don't provide those basic needs, or provide them in a very unhealthy way. So even this local food system, our current local food system, is a symptom or an example of both this kind of ecological acceleration and economic divergence. So the key question for me is whether we can address both the ecological issues and social inequality and the redesign of new food systems. So a bit more background than one of the projects that I've had in the last few years um, with my PhD student Luke Craven, who's in the back of the room, <clears throat> has been in part 
interviewing food activists, food justice activists, food systems activists uh, here in Australia, in the US, and the UK. And we've repeatedly heard about the kind of alienation that people feel uh, about their, their disconnect from food systems, from ecological systems, and from uh, one another. The disconnect between their everyday lives and nature and food and the importance of then reconnecting with both people and place in the redesign of food systems. So one food justice activist says, we have a perilous separation right now and not knowing where our food comes up before it ends up on our table or how people are treated through that food or where the waste goes at the end of the meal. Another one says, our food comes to us by way of great violence to the planet, to the ecosystem, to the people who produce it, and then it does such violence to our bodies as well. And many link this disconnection and alienation from the non-human realm with our common lack of a relationship with one another. So one says, it's this kind of innate belief in the fact that there's a real disconnect between people and their surrounding environment. And I don't just mean the sort of natural world, I mean each other as well. There's a disconnect between the sort of processes and the values that make us human and our day-to-day -day activities. So it's about um, ecological systems and it's about alienation from one another. Right? And we don't often think about that kind of alienation. Right? So think about the last thing that you ate today. Right? And the invisibility uh, of the things that we eat. How many of you know, just really a show of hands, how many of you know where the last thing you ate was actually grown? No one. Okay? No one in the room. Um, now, of course, I lost my place because I'm shocked at that answer. Um, that's really the easy question, right? What about the ecological conditions of that area where it was grown or the people who grow and pick or pack or ship that food, right? How much do we not know about our food and how much is that linked to the way our economic and social production of food is disconnected um, to ecosystems and social systems? So the obvious response to these sorts of issues and that sort of reality that nobody in this room knows where the hell their food came from, that's just amazing, right? The obvious um, response to that um, is to focus on visibility and reconnection. Right? And so one of the activists that we interviewed uh, says, I like the word connection. I guess I think of community generally as your connection to others, other people, other living forms, understanding your connection to natural systems, understanding your connection between the choices you make and the world that you're a part of. Okay, so that's sort of the ecological side uh, of the redesign of food systems. Um, sort of more to the point of the discussion tonight, there's also the great divergence in terms of food wealth, and Sydney really does represent one of those great divergences. I mean, we've got some of the best restaurants in the world. We've got hats all over the place. We've got um, grocery stores um, that have um, beautiful, plentiful food for those that can afford it. Right? We've got the duopoly, um, fresh produce, prepared foods, um, pre-prepared foods. There's a broad range <clears throat> of foods out there for folks with access and who can afford it. But of course, as we've heard, there are a lot of people who can't. And this 8% number to me is shocking, right? That's just the city LGA, right? Given the current population of the LGA, that's nearly 17,000 people who can't feed themselves on a daily basis, right? 17,000 people just in the small LGA every day. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of our neighbors, right? How can we justify that reality? How can we live alongside um, that reality? How can, we, how can that reality live alongside the wealth uh, in the city? And to me, that's sort of unconscionable, unjustifiable, uh, unsustainable, and unjust. 
Now, one of the things that got me interested in working on Sydney's food system <clears throat> was some past work that I did with Allison, and this was on uh, adaptation planning with the city of Sydney. So SEI did some work um, with folks, and we, um, we ran a two-and-a-half-day deliberative democratic uh, session where we had residents from the LGA talk about the risks of climate change and some of the, the policies that the city uh, was proposing. And one of the things that really surprised me um, about this discussion was how often food came up. So this is just from one of the tables. And food security was the number one thing uh, that came up for people. So if there's a shock event, if there's a storm, if there's something that happens due to climate change, where's our food going to come from? Right, we can't feed ourselves. People always talk about this, this statistic. I don't even know if it's true. We should find this out. Right, that We only have three days' worth of food. If transportation is shut down, it's three days, you know, and then it's um, some sort of zombie park. Right. Um, so there was this real concern with, uh, with food security. They wanted the city, the citizens wanted the city to actually do something to this risk to the generalized, um, to the food supply uh, in emergencies. And they wanted to do that in part by supporting the development of more urban farming, more food production in the city, um, better forms of distribution. The call was for a more local and a more resilient uh, urban food system. And one of the things that didn't surprise me um, is that the city had a real difficult time with this citizen request because it's not the city's responsibility to do that, right? Food security is a state issue. It's a national issue. This isn't something that cities have on, you know, in, in, their, uh, in their set of responsibilities. So there's a bit of hesitation. Now, of course, a lot is going on in the city. There are a lot of new policies, the focus uh, on the farm and on food insecurity. But to me, what's important is that citizens, that residents of the city were really dedicated to this idea of doing something about the urban food system. Now, other municipalities in Australia uh, are doing uh, a bit in terms of rethinking their role um, in food systems and the production and maintenance of sustainable food systems. Victoria, of course, as it always is, is sort of the center uh, of uh, the new um, food system universe. There's some catching up to do here. So uh, Darbin, for example, and of course I'm American, so apologies if I mispronounce any of the names. Luke will correct me at some point. Um, so northeast of the Melbourne CBD, it's a great example of a council thinking about how to fit food insecurity and nutrition into existing policies, right, without having to develop um, a lot of new stuff. Melbourne City has just hired a full-time food policy officer to coordinate um, the food system efforts in the city, that's a big deal, a full-time position to focus specifically uh, on food systems. Um, Cardinia in the South is another good model of full systems change with a focus on health and access uh, and economic development. Uh, Moreland has a pretty amazing um, new uh, food system strategy to develop a more local and community-based food system, address physical and mental health, deal with insecurity, um, and in general develop a more sustainable, just, and vibrant food system. Um, and then Bendigo in central Victoria uh, is going all out um, to develop not just sort of a, a, new, a new plan for a food system, but a physical space uh, for a food hub for people to come together uh, around food, to create a local food industry, to expand a local food industry, and to create a range of business opportunities. And that's actually one of the things um, that we're suggesting here. So as part of a broad research team, uh, at uh, the Sydney Environment Institute, including Alana and uh, many others in the room. We're really looking forward to working um, with the city. We've made some suggestions, uh, but 
uh, we're looking forward to sort of some practical, to talking about some practical and tested ways to develop a new urban food system. So it's clear to start that this is in addition to the kind of work that NCOS uh, is talking about um, on allowances, on energy concessions, on housing affordability. All of these things are crucial, right? Food insecurity isn't just about food. Food insecurity is about a number of different issues. But when it comes um, to food insecurity, we have a number of things that we'd like um, to suggest. So uh, the boring stuff first, again, we're researchers. I'm an academic. I'm sorry. So. The, we just need to collect some baseline data, continue to collect some baseline data. And one of the things going on here is there are a lot of folks collecting data, but there really isn't a central, um, a central repository, a central place where we can all come together and agree on um, both the process of collecting data, the data that we have, the understandings that we have, uh, and what the important issues are. So we need to get some more baseline measurements about what's actually going on in the city in terms of food insecurity and food practices. But we also want to get some baseline data around what people actually want, right? What, what the residents understand uh, a good food system to be, a sustainable food system to be, a secure food system uh, to be. Uh, we want to know more about what people want in terms of skills and education um, to have uh, healthier diets. So there's baseline data that needs to be collected. The second thing that we'd like to do is a, um, or that we're suggesting we do, is a broad-based uh, participatory food planning exercise. And this is something that's been going on in a number of places, uh, in Canada, in the US, uh, and elsewhere. And what this is about is engaging the community in the, develop, the development of a city food plan uh, to address food vulnerability on the one hand and economic opportunity uh, on the other. Because it's not just enough to provide for food security or to increase income. What we're trying to do is to think about ways that we can create a food system that doesn't just create food, but also creates economic opportunity um, for people who are less uh, advantaged. Um, so there's a lot to do there in terms of participatory food planning. Um, the third thing that we're thinking about um, is the importation of a model from the US um, that's worked quite well at getting vulnerable populations involved in the redesign and participation within a local food system. And that's the development uh, of a food business incubator. So this picture is from Food Lab Detroit. We're going to have um, the leader of Food Lab Detroit uh, here later in the year, Davida Davison. In its most basic function, a food incubator like this or a business incubator is an environment that supports small businesses, startup businesses, um, that, to help them create and market value-added food products. Um, and again, this is the kind of thing that can be done in the, in the dormant food spaces, the dormant kitchen spaces, commercial kitchen spaces that we have. That's city-owned, very inexpensive for folks to use, um, and it can help folks um, to, um, to develop new businesses. Um, so to connect the economic development and social vulnerability dimensions uh, of this incubator, um, it would target the ideas to target vulnerable and low-income communities um, and help uh, provide residents with customized training and resources to launch and grow their food businesses, businesses which is exactly um, what's been working quite well uh, in Detroit. Um, and we're also talking to a major retailer, who I can't name at this point in time, um, who's prepared not just to help people and to train people, but also to put stuff on shelves, right? So you actually have uh, a ready market. Um, so incubators like this 
um, provide long-term sustainable employment opportunities for vulnerable populations. Again, we've seen this work elsewhere. Um, it's upskilling um, for folks. It connects local producers and manufacturers and retailers, so we would help connect people um, with the supply chain uh, for um, local growers and the like. Um, uh, and it can support the development uh, of shorter food chains as well. So there's a lot going on there. Um, the other possibility when it comes to food incubators, and this comes out of the, some of the work that's being done here at the University of Sydney, sort of in partnership between ag and, um, uh, uh, and the engineering school, um, is uh, the development of larger-scale vertical urban farming. So this is happening in a big way in, in New York City, for example, robotic farming, urban um, uh, vertical farming. Um, sort of, it really is the sort of interface between uh, ag and robotic engineering. But for us... We can address ecological impacts as well as social impacts. So, of course, this kind of farming is much less intensive. We're not going to destroy the reef by growing food in this particular way, right? There's a lot less waste in food systems like this. There's a lot less pesticide usage. Um, so it's a much more ecologically viable and sustainable way to produce food. Um, and you can actually do this um, in, um, in spaces and rooftops uh, in the city. Um, and again, this is the incubator idea more generally is something that research shows can address both food insecurity and economic opportunity. And then finally, and bringing all of this stuff together, um, we're talking about um, the development of a broader physical food hub for the city of Sydney. And this could include uh, a range of services. So you could have uh, an emergency food scheme, a food bank, you could have community-supported agriculture or the food box scheme. You could have a different sort of market um, different sort of farmer's market, so not quite the Everly setup, but something that connects growers uh, with either value-added producers or um, with restaurants and others in the city. You can have actual vertical farming on the site. It can include classrooms um, for nutrition and education classes, um, and then commercial kitchen space as well for the development of new um, businesses. So again, there's a lot of experience here, especially in North America, that demonstrate that food hubs really do offer a way to involve folks who grow, who eat, who cook, and share uh, in a very integrated way, and you can achieve a range of long-lasting benefits. So there are some food hubs being developed here in Australia. We can talk uh, about some of those, um, but we do believe, we really do believe at SEI that the city of Sydney can become a model of best practice um, with a range of practices, uh, maybe even a food hub that serve different residents in different ways, that can address the key issue of food security while also providing economic development opportunities uh, and improved health outcomes uh, for local residents. So there's a lot of potential here to take food insecurity and food systems much more seriously, to involve the public in the design of a new urban food system, to support economic development, um, and to locally address both the great acceleration uh, and the great divergence. Uh, and we at SEI really look forward um, to working with the city and NCOS and others uh, in the development uh, of a new and more sustainable, uh, more resilient food system in the city of Sydney. So I look forward to talking about it. Thank you, David. And I'll invite Alison and Rhiannon to join us again on the stage for the Q&A. I quite liked your, um, I was visualizing the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but it was actually, I think it was Hurricane Sandy, wasn't it? When um, they realized they were nine meals from 
anarchy when everyone, because when everybody, when there's a disaster, everybody actually cleans out the shelves, don't they? Because they're panicking. And it was, it was Sandy that pushed New York City to develop a much more resilient food system. There's got, they've got a lot more um, urban development of agriculture. Yeah. yeah.